to uh, have you. We're very excited for all of you that are here with us this morning. We believe God has something very special for you, and uh, it's Christmas time. And that's a good thing, right? So we're, uh, we're excited about that. And uh, we're doing a series on Jesus, and it's focused mainly on uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6 in particular. And so from the beginning of time, God has promised to deliver, and this is really what Christmas is all about. Christmas is about the child that was, give, the child that was born and the son that was given, the child that was born to set the world free, the son that was given to fulfill all that God promised. From the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve decided they wanted to sell themselves into slavery, which is effectively what they did, God promised to help them from that circumstance. God loves us too much to leave us the same. So he saw what man did, man selling himself into slavery, going into bondage, sin comes into the system, corrupts and blows everything out, and God says, I'm not going to leave them like this. I'm going to provide a way. And so even in the book of Genesis, God promised that he would bring a savior, he would bring a Messiah, who would be one who would be born of the seed of the woman. And so they would say, with the seed of the woman, which means he was going to be divine, he was going to be conceived divinely, and he was going to be born. He was going to be a man, he was going to be divine, and he was going to be a king. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he was born to do what? One of the things he was born to do was destroy the slavery that we find ourselves in. Anybody know what I'm talking about? There's slavery that, that, that exists without chains. There's bondage that exists without chains. It's the bondage of sin. It's the weight of guilt. It's the weight of shame. It's the weight of separation. That's a pain and a bondage that exists even though you can't see it. And so we're working off this, this text in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and it says, Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Jesus was born for us. That's the good news, right? He wasn't born because he didn't have anything better to do. He wasn't the son that was given because he said, hey, this sounds like a good idea. I'll go down and conceive myself into a woman, and then I'll be born, and I'll suffer through all of the, the pain and the anguish of being human. <laughs> I'll be brutally murdered, die on a cross, raise again, just because I got nothing better to do. That's not why he did it. He did it for us. Unto us, the child is born. Unto us, the son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called. He will bear with him the government of heaven. We talked about that last week. Jesus came down with the government of heaven. Before Christ came, the world was in chaos. And somebody said, the world's in chaos and Jesus has already come. That's true. But before, the world, before Christ came, the world was in chaos. The, world, the Bible just literally shows us a world that was under the sway of demonic power that had absolute authority. Absolute authority. The devil had absolute authority authority. The Bible actually calls him at that time the God of this world. When he tempted Jesus, one of the things he tempted Jesus with is he said, bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. It was his to give. Why were the kingdoms of the earth the devil's to give? Because man had given it to him. That's what happened with Adam. Adam gave away the farm. Adam and Eve said, here, take it. We don't want it. God created the earth, created Adam, gave Adam authority, gave Adam dominion, Bible tells him to rule and subdue, go forth, create culture. That was the mandate, the Genesis mandate. They said, well, you know, we kind of don't want God's way. We want it our way. And so they took off and did it their way. And in doing so, they surrendered their dominion and they surrendered their authority, heaven's dominion, because heaven had given them the dominion. And so they took heaven's dominion and gave it to a fallen angel. And the result of that was absolute bondage and slavery. Darkness entered human existence. Evil, selfishness, wickedness, corruption, all of that is a result of sin. It's not God's intent. It's not God's design. And Jesus came, so Adam failed. Jesus comes as the last Adam. And one of the things the Bible is telling us is that he comes with the government upon his shoulder. Well, what government? If you look at, read the story of Jesus, Jesus wasn't walking around wielding his hand and waving the scepter and manifesting human government. But he was manifesting Heaven's government, rulership and dominion over natural circumstances, rulership and dominion over sickness, disease, rulership and uh, dominion over, over um, uh, sin, rulership and even over death itself. Life and death, he had power over life and death. He willed himself dead on the cross. That's a crazy concept. Can you will yourself dead? No, not just by will, but he can. He said, I gave, he's to telestai, he gave up his heart. He gave up, or he said he gave up his spirit. And then he says, if I lay my life down, he can take it up again. So he exercised kingdom dominion. So when Jesus came down, he was carrying the government of heaven. He wasn't carrying the government of men. 
This second coming, he will bring the government of men. He will rule all things. But this time he came with the government of heaven and his mission was to become as us that we might become like him in order to restore back to us the government authority, the kingdom governmental authority that man had lost. The Christian has been empowered with the spiritual government of heaven. You are in authority in the spirit. Say it doesn't look like it because you don't know what you're doing. You, you don't understand what's truly yours and you don't know what you're doing. That's okay. Very few of us do. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus has given us dominion. He's restored to us the dominion of heaven. We have spiritual authority. It's the way it is. The Bible says that he came bearing heaven's government. Jesus said what? Matthew 4, 17. Okay, Jesus is baptized. He's coming out of the wilderness. And what he says, from that time he began to preach. He began to proclaim, saying what? Teshuva, which is the word repentance. This is an important one. We use this word repentance. Repent, repent, repent. Well, what does repent mean? Somebody says it means to change your mind. No, it means a lot more than that. The Hebrew word for repent is the, is the Hebrew word teshuva, and it means come back to me. That's the first step of repentance is teshuva. Return to me. The Greek word is metanoia. So return to me and see things differently. Return to me and change the way that you think. People can't change the way they think until they return to Jesus. People can't change the way they see things until they return to Jesus. Romans 12.1, be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. That's impossible until you come to Christ. You're always going to think carnally. The Bible says you have a carnal mind. Man without Christ has a carnal mind, a worldly mind. And it says that the worldly mind is the enemy of God. In other words, all human thinking is anti-God. All human thinking is self-centered in its nature. You understand that? Look at your life. <laughs> it, without Christ, and even when you're out of the spirit, look how you think. You think in the craziest ways. You think with the carnal mind, but the Christian is given access to the mind of Christ. So in the spirit, we have an ability to think and to see differently. We do. It's given to the believer. Jesus began to preach and say, return to me. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is he saying? The kingdom of heaven, the dominion of God, the king's dominion, the rulership and the reigning power of the kingdom of God and the eternal world has come and it's within your reach. That's what he's saying. It's at hand. You can lay hold of this. It's near you. Come back to me because the kingdom is within your reach. I'm here to give you back what you lost. I'm here to bring the dominion of heaven down. Jesus broke the power of sin, hell, and the grave. He crushed, the Bible says, the devil's head. Prior to that, the devil had rulership and reign. Rulership and reign. If you read the Gospels, that's all he's doing is confronting demons. Demon over here, demon over here, demon over here. Everywhere Jesus went, there was a demonic eruption. The world was enslaved to demonic power. If you read the writings of the early church, which is an interesting statement, there were demons everywhere. If you read some of the histories and the writings of guys that, that come out of that time, like Polycarp, you'll read that, that they were dealing with this because the kingdom was breaking into the world. And when the kingdom breaks into the world, light exposes darkness. And the power of darkness had been broken. What we have in the Western world is we have over 2,000 years of the inbreaking of the gospel. The kingdom power has been inbreaking in the earth for over 2,000 years. But back then, they didn't have 2,000 years of inbreaking power. They had 60, they had 80, they had 90. The gospel hadn't touched these regions. That's why regions of the earth that are literally barely, if at all, touched by the gospel, you see eruptions of demonic power. And I'm not talking about the preaching of the gospel, I'm talking about the gospel of the kingdom. The Western world has a hard time, particularly in the United States. We almost believe like the devil doesn't exist in our churches anymore. And the reason is, is because we're the beneficiaries of 2,000 years of a kingdom gospel, and we're the beneficiaries of a nation where the gospel in all of its forms has been proclaimed from coast to coast. I'm not saying there aren't demons. I'm not saying there's not demonic power, but it's not outright and in your face. There are certain parts of the world where it's outright and in your face. The power is still there. The demonic power still exists, but it's not like, here I am, I dare you. Go to some parts of the world. And you're going to see, here I am, I dare you. And that's what the early church was confronting. They were confronting this. And one of the ways when the, when, when the, when the church was clashing with culture, this is interesting. 
When the church was clashing with culture, there's a, a, a story, and I believe it's Polycarp, where he was dealing with a Roman centurion, or they were dealing with a Roman government official, and the Roman government official was challenging the Christian, saying, what makes your God more powerful than the pantheon of gods or the numerous of gods that all the people worship? What makes your God different? And they said, and the, 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 the Christian said to him, the, the church leader, I can't remember the guy's name, I'm pretty sure it's Polycarp, I could be wrong, but he said to him, Bring to me one who carries the spirit of the gods. In other words, bring me one who manifests. That's what was happening. These people were walking around and the demons were literally manifesting. They would call him, oh, he has the spirit of the gods. We see it today. We live in Miami. Hello. They're manifesting witch spirits all day long. They manifest Santeria spirits all day long. And they manifest. And they're specific spirits of that religion. They're manifesting those specific spirits. It's happening today in the US of A in the 305, right now. But it was happening there, in a, it was a global thing. It wasn't just a regional thing. And so he said, bring to us one who claims to have the spirit of Zeus. And I will bring to you the newest of our believers. And by that newest believer, we will demonstrate the power and the authority that that believer has over the one who claims the spirit of the gods. They would bring the believers in and start casting out devils. They would literally manifest the authority that they had over the devils publicly because it was a demonstration, particularly to the Romans, of the power of Jesus Christ. The book of Mark is written to the Romans. There's more demonic manifestation in the book of Mark than there is any other book. Why? Because the Romans cared about power. So Mark goes, you want to see power? Let me show you power. And that was literally what the world was confronting or what the church was confronting in the early world. We like to focus on the stuff where the, where, the, where the church was confronting false teaching. Yeah, the church was confronting false teaching, but the church was confronting demonic power. And they had to demonstrate authority. Well, where did they get that authority? Kingdom authority given to them through Christ. That's only one of the aspects over it. The other one was they would, have, they would exercise authority over sickness and disease. Paul says, I don't come to you with tinkling words. I don't come to you with my great oratory skills. I come to you with demonstration and power. Big difference. Oh, that the church and the pastors and the leaders would come to the world today with demonstration and power. We're we're the most amazing orators in the earth. The American church has amazing orators. I mean, gold drips from their tongues when they speak. Orate. But we have no demonstration and power. Weak in the demonstration and power, yet that is exactly what the Bible calls for, the demonstration and power. Demonstrate the power of the gospel, not with word, but indeed, oh, we feed the poor. It's not about feeding the poor. We think that's the power of God. We go out there and feed the poor. Nothing wrong with feeding the poor, but Jesus didn't say feed the poor. He said, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils and cleanse lepers. That's the mandate. Yes, well, visit orphans and, you know, take care of widows. And I, I get all that. But that is a lesser command than the one that, he j- that I just told you. It's a fact. Why? Because feeding the poor doesn't demonstrate kingdom authority. The, the Kiwanis Club can feed the poor. The United Way can feed the poor, right? There's tons of charitable organizations that can feed the poor. And the church gets lost in the midst of everyone feeding the poor. But the church needs to do what only the church can do. Lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils and cleanse lepers. That's what we are called and mandated to do. And it's through the power of the spirit and it's through the government of heaven that Christ came to restore to us. Church makes excuses for its powerlessness. We make excuses for cowardice and we make excuses for powerlessness. Jesus suffers no excuse, Christian. You can't say, well, my doctrinal belief was that the power ended with the apostles. That's not what the Bible says. I don't care what your doctrinal belief says. You can't hide behind your doctrinal position in the face of truth. So you say, I don't know how to lay hands on the sick. Well, you need to learn. I don't know how to cast out devils. Well, you need to learn. I don't know how to cleanse lepers. Well, you need to learn. We're disciples. We're learners under discipline. Learners under discipline. We're supposed to learn. And if we don't know, we continue to learn. It's a lost art. Church has lost its skill. The reason we've lost our skill is because we haven't practiced this. There's huge gaps. 
The early church, if you read the story of the church to the east, the Orthodox church, not the Western Catholic church, what happened was the Catholic church began to venerate miracles. And if the, if the church didn't approve your miracle, they could kill you. And so the church began to shut down with miracle power and go into doctrine because the Catholic church began to vet miracles because they viewed anyone manifesting the kingdom as a threat to their hierarchy. It stopped in the West because, the Catholic, because of Catholic persecution of those things. So would you do a miracle if it was going to cost you your life? You lay hands and say, this person got healed. Well, we're going to vet that. Well, that didn't work. We're going to kill you now because you're a heretic. That'll shut it down real quick. But in the East, it never happened. It never stopped. They had, they had miracles going on in the Eastern Church forever. It was going on and going on and going on long after the Catholic, the Catholic Church shut it down. You see the Catholic Church today. It's only a miracle if they venerate it. In the Catholic Church, they don't declare a miracle. They venerate it. <laughs> Chella, uh, Shelley's daughter was telling me, Pastor Kevin, you've seen more than three miracles. In Catholic theology, you could be considered a saint. Is that crazy? For three miracles. <laughs> I said, well, there actually is a church called, it's not my church. It's called St. Kevin's. You guys know where this church is? <laughs> so we were in Central School. I'm like, well, there's a church. For three miracles, you could be considered a saint. We should be seeing more than three miracles, people. I'm already a saint. I'm a saint because I'm God, Jesus tells me I am. Not because I earn it, but because he gives it to me. Kingdom authority, he came to give it back to us. It's, under, it's so undervalued. The kingdom is often referenced, but seldom understood. We reference the kingdom. Oh, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. But we don't understand it. We don't understand what it is and what the full implications of that is, are. Or we put the kingdom off. When Jesus comes... The kingdom will come with him. No, the kingdom is with us now, right now. In the spirit, we have the kingdom of God. When you get into the spirit, you're in his world. You're in his realm. That's why everything shifts. That's why you go from being antagonistic, angry person, then you get in the spirit, and you're like, whoa. Everything shifts because you're in his world. There's no problems in his world. There's no turbulence in his world. There's no sickness in his world. There's, so when we minister, we minister from his world into ours. That's how we minister, on earth as it is in heaven. Is that not what Jesus said? So we think, we, we think the miracles are coming from the natural. No, we go to his world, we pull from what is his world, and we release it into our world. That's, how, that's the dynamic. That's the mechanism. How does that work? Well, that depends. But that's the concept. Heaven's government has come down. Jesus is the last Adam. He has heavenly authority to mankind, present, active, spiritual, now. The kingdom is now. You say, well, the kingdom's yet to come. Yeah, the kingdom's yet to come, but it is with us now in spirit. Jesus is going to bring it in fullness. It's going to be a, it is going to be a present, active, physical reality. Jesus is going to come, and the dominion of God, heaven will become to earth. The new Jerusalem will come down. Old things are really going to pass away. All things are really going to be new. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. What does that look like? That because Jesus is coming. Jesus isn't going to live in an old shabby house, people. This is, this, is a little, this is too much of a shack for him. He lived in the shack. He's not living in the shack second time around. He's not living in a manger second time around. The Bible says the second time he comes, he comes with clouds of glory, which means the full weight of who he is. He's not coming incognito. Jesus is coming again, and the second time, it's not incognito. Bible says every eye will see him. The lightning will flash from the east to the west. Poof. Sonic. Poof. And through that light, Jesus will come. He's not going to be humble. He's going to glide down like the rock star that he is. He's coming rock star style. That's right. Oh, humble Jesus. Read your Bible, man. Read your Bible. Every eye will see him. He's going to be blinging on a white horse. Yeah. He's not going to come and wrapped in swaddling clothes and humble and demure. He already did that. He came beneath us to lift us up. Now he comes as the positional authority that he has, which is king. He's coming as king, and he is a king, and he deserves honor. Amen. All believers have the kingdom by the Holy Spirit right now. Jesus rules and reigns through the Spirit. Where's Jesus' dominion exercised through? The government's on his shoulders right now. But where's the dominion exercised? The dominion of Christ is exercised in the Spirit, by the Spirit, through the body of Christ. If the body of Christ doesn't do it, the dominion of God is not manifested in the world. We are his body, are we not? So Jesus is ruling and reigning. He has full capacity, full authority in the spirit. He's given it to us, and we are to manifest that 
in our world. If it doesn't, well, where's Jesus? If Jesus is ruling and reigning, he's ruling and reigning through his body. That's what he's doing. If the hands don't go and the feet don't go, nothing's going to happen. Just a thought. We're waiting on God to do something. I said it last week. Christianity's not a spectator sport, man. You can't sit back and watch this thing. You've got to participate. People say, well, Jesus has already done the work, Pastor. It's all done. We're just going to rest in Christ, and we're going to occupy until Jesus comes. That's not what he said. That's not what he said. Yes, salvation is done. Salvation is the completed work. That's true. You're born again. That's a completed work. But the promises aren't a completed work. Your destiny's not a completed work. God's going to do what God's going to do. Really? The field of the church is littered with people who thought God was going to do it for them. He will not do it for you. And you cannot do it without you, him. He does it with you. Always and forever, divine partnership. Jesus isn't doing anything without you in your life. You will participate. Well, God's going to do it for me. He's already done it for you. He's already done it for you. He's given you great and precious promises by which you can become partakers of the divine nature. Every great and precious promise has an activation principle attached to it, including salvation. Salvation's a free gift. No, it costs you something. You have to do something. If you want to be saved and you want to be born again, it's not. He doesn't just give it to everybody. He gives it to those who ask. So the condition of salvation is based upon you asking. If you don't ask, it's not given. Is that not a condition? I have something amazing for you. Well, give it to me. I'm not giving it to you unless you ask me. He's not acting like that, but that's how we are. There's a condition upon salvation. Salvation's unconditional. Once you receive it, yeah. But if you don't ask for it, he's not giving it. You must believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. You must be born again. You must humble yourself. If you don't humble yourself and confess him as Lord, he's Lord, you're not. If you don't confess him as Lord, you're not saved. Let's just be clear. It's not Jesus, your divine body. Just a thought. We have access to the kingdom through the spirit, by the spirit. The kingdom and the authority of Christ is manifested through the believer. Absolutely true. He will rule and reign in physical presence, and that physical presence will be active. Rulership. One of the things that one of the, we're going to talk about a lot, a lot of different motifs of Jesus this morning. One of his motifs is a priest, which means intermediary. He is our high priest, Hebrews says. The priest would wear an ephod. They would wear an ephod made out of linen. Why? Because the ephod, so I'll just tell you, he made an ephod out of linen, and it had 12 stones on it. And each one of those stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel. It was made out of linen. The shoulders had onyx stones on it. So he had onyx stones on the shoulders, had a golden strap, or the linen. They, they, of course, they ornated it as time went on, but its original design was linen. Why linen? Because God was showing them, I carry, the, I carry my people close to my heart. So the idea was the linen ephod, because Jesus is the high priest, so the earthly priest represents the greater priest, and the greater priest says, I carry my people close to my heart. And the linen means it's not a burden. That's what linen represents. It's not a burden. The priests were to wear linen because they were never to let the people think that serving God was a burden. Right? You're not going to hear me complain. My complaints go up. I didn't say this job's easy. It's not. <laughs> but the benefit plan of the Holy Spirit is pretty good, so I'll take that. But the, peop- the priests were to wear linen. Pastors, you're not supposed to complain. Right? You're not supposed to complain. And if you do complain, your complaint goes up. Your complaint doesn't go sideways, right? Your complaint goes up. This job is an honor. It is. It's an honor. I don't have to. I get to, right? I take a blood oath. I serve him with everything I have. And that's the idea. That was what Jesus was wearing. He's wearing, he wears a linen ephod, which means it's not a burden for him to carry you. For me to draw you close to my heart is not a burden for me. It's easy. It's linen. It's light, it's breathable, right? A little bit on the wrinkly side, if you're a linen wearer, nonetheless, but it's a lightweight garment. (laughs) He put the onyx stones on the shoulder. The onyx represents authority. The black stones represented authority or right to judge, judgment. I have the right to judge. He's the rightful priest of the earth and he is the one who, listen, no one has the right to judge you but Jesus if you're a Christian, just to let you know. No one. Paul said, it's a small thing that I'm judged by you, or any human for that matter. For I myself do not even judge myself, for the one who judges me is the Lord. And to that master I stand, and to that master I fall. That's right. The Lord is the one who carries the right to judge among his people. He has every right. Every right. 
Our judgments upon each other is meaningless unless those judgments are in line with what Christ asks of us. But he bears the government upon his shoulders. Another mirror of that. The attributes, and it says his name will be called. When it says his name will be called, it says his character will be like this. This is the person you are going to recognize. When the child is born and the son is given, he's going to carry the government on his shoulder. So there's going to be some crazy things. He's going to have rulership and weight to his life that nobody else has had before. But there's also going to be some attributes. One of them is he's the wonderful counselor. There's a lot of counselors in this world. There's a lot of people that want to give you counsel, but not all of it's wonderful. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of people that want to tell you what to do with your life. There's a lot of opinions about what you should do with your life, but there's only one opinion that matters, and it's Jesus's. He's the wonderful counselor. God will counsel you. God will direct you, and the way that God will counsel you and direct you will be wonderful, full of wonder, right? You ever heard the Lord tell you something or God give you guidance, whether it's through prayer, through the word, through the spirit, through through someone else where you knew this was God's counsel, and you were like, wow, right? You ever had that happen to you? If you haven't, I dare you. (laughs) He's the wonderful counselor. The word wonderful is the Hebrew word, pele, and it means miraculous. He's the miraculous counselor. What does that mean? His counsel brings miracles. Huh? That's what people need. They need a word from the Lord. They don't just need a word from the Lord. They need to obey that word. I get Listen, a word from the Lord is easy. You want a word from the Lord all day long? Popcorn machine, man. Jesus has a word for you. Bible says he's forever speaking. Wisdom is poured out in the concourses of the street. Jesus has a word. I get people all the time, you got a word for me, pastor? I give them the word. I go, wow, well, my, my new thing is if I give you the word, are you going to do anything with it? I don't really qualify that, but that's kind of like what I'm thinking in my mind. I'm like, if I give you this word, are you going to do anything with it? But then again, it's not mine to tell you whether I should give it to you or not. If the Lord has a word for you, I'm going to give it to you. But most people, they get a word from the Lord. They go, oh, that was interesting. That was nice. Right over their head, you know, like Jack Sparrow, they wave it as it passes them by. They do nothing with it. There are people who've gotten the same word for 10 years and they don't get any. Yeah, I keep getting that word. I've gotten that word for like 10 years. I don't know why I keep getting that word because you're supposed to do something with it. That's why you keep getting that word. It's because you're actually supposed to do something with what he's telling you. He has a word for you. His word comes through his spirit. His word comes through prayer. His word comes through his word. God has a word for you, always and forever. The results of his counsel are miraculous. And it means that his counsel will bring miracles and he will counsel you into the miracles. If you want to know how Jesus counsels you, he counsels you into faith. He counsels you beyond yourself. God's counsel for you is always next level. Yes, there's wisdom to deal with circumstances. But if you want counsel for your life, God calls you to things that are beyond you. He calls you to a miracle because he's the wonderful counselor. He's the miracle-working God. And what I would say to you is that God has a count. Say this with me. The Lord, come on, help me out. The Lord has a word for me, no matter the season or no matter the circumstance. This is important. People need to understand that Jesus has a word for you no matter the season of your life and no matter the circumstance. And this is often the response. The, the faith people are like, yeah, because they know their love. But oftentimes people, conv- their, their hearts are condemning them and they, don't, and they feel like, well, I don't know. I've kind of gone too far. My, my, my response to you is, is, who told you that? I'm going to give you Hosea. I could give you any number of ones, but Hosea is a really beautiful one. So the, the story's going on here is God is talking to the prophet Hosea, and he's saying, my people have sold themselves out as slaves again. My people have given themselves back to the place I brought them out of. Can, any, can I get a witness here, anybody at all? Have you done what you knew you weren't supposed to do and found yourself in a living mess? You know, God says right, you say left. The Lord says up, you say down. The Lord says go, you say stay. The Lord says forward, you say backwards. Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and then people, they do those things and they're like, oh no, God doesn't love me anymore. Who told you that? And so the Lord is saying to Hosea, my people have turned from me and forgotten me. That's the big thing. When people experience success, you really want to know where their faith is? The, the, faith, the faith of God is demonstrated in the highs and the lows. Huh? Anybody can have faith in the low. Because, oh God, I need you, I need you, I need you, I need you. 
Most often with Christians, there's a test not only in, in lack, there's a test in prosperity. And very few Christians pass the test of prosperity. Oh, I was faithful in the trial because I had nothing. Of course you were. The Lord's your everlasting hope. But as soon as you got money, boom, you were off doing your own thing. As soon as you got success, boom, you were off doing your own thing. That's what God told the people in Deuteronomy. When you come into the land that I'm giving you, I'm going to bless you. This is going to be an amazing word. And you, this is literally the translation. You will heave my word behind your back. You're going to be like, wow, there goes the word. Wow, there goes Jesus. Hey, what about Jesus? Jesus who? Jesus who? Who? Oh, oh him? Yeah, yeah, I'll get back to him. So people are. They sell themselves out. They sell out, their, they sell out their faith. They sell out their destiny. Most often, not always, but most often, when God blesses them. Always. God will bless you. The blessing of God is sure, and he adds no sorrow to it. God will bless his people, 100%. The question isn't whether God will bless you. The question, will you be faithful in the abundance? That's the question. Yeah. It says, my people have turned from me and they've forgotten me. And here's the Lord telling Hosea, they've sold themselves again. <laughs> Hosea, people have sold themselves again. And so the prophet's kind of like, well, what are you going to do, Lord? What are you going to do? And he says, I'm going to win her back. God sees us. He sees him. He always relates to us in the feminine form, right? And what it is is it's, Greater, lesser, right? So he's the greater, we're the lesser. That's how he relates to us. He relates to us, him as the husband, and we are the bride of Christ, right? So what he calls the church, right? It's always been his relationship with his people. He's, been daught, he's looked at them as his bride. He, Judah and Israel, he called them sisters, right? The north and the south kingdom, he called them sisters. Your sister, Samaria, your sister, Judah. So he relates to his people in the feminine. There's a powerful teaching there. Because it's God who impregnates us. You understand that? It's God who gives you dreams. It's God who gives you destiny. It's God who gives you ability. It's God through us that manifests life. That's the image. If you really want to get down on it, that's why. Oh, I don't like being referred to in the feminine. You don't understand the concept, dummy. You don't. God sires. That's the word desire is to sire. He sires within us. And as he sires within us, we manifest. We bring forth. Ladies, anybody here had a child? You bring forth through that relationship. The husband isn't bringing forth. We don't have kids. We act like we know what it's like, what's like right? Men are like, you know. Yeah, when we had the baby, we were in labor for about 24 hours. It was rough. Woo! I mean, I must have went to the snack machine like four or five times. I mean, it was really, really hard. This is how guys view it, right? So, but God sires within us, but the production is through our lives. That's the mirror. And so he's saying to them, he's saying, she's turned away from me again. And he says, but I'm going to go and I'm going to lead her to the desert. Well, what's that all about? It's the Hebrew word debar. It means place of speaking. I'm going to go and I'm going to win her back. I'm going to draw her to myself to a place where she and I can have a conversation. You ever wonder why your life's so desolate? Could it be that God has tried to draw you to a place of conversation? Could it be that you're his daughter, you're his son, you're, 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 he's married to you, the Bible says, and he's trying to draw you to a place where you can have a conversation? It's less about your desolation and it's more about the conversation. Could that be the case? Just a thought. So he says, I'm going to draw her to the place of Debar, and I'm going to speak. How's he going to speak? He tells us. The word is tenderly. Huh? Often translated kindly, but nonetheless, I will speak tenderness. We think, oh, I've separated myself from God. I've forgotten God. I've run off. I've done my own thing. God's going to get me. God's going to strike me. Who told you that? Your Bible doesn't say that. You see, you walked away from God. You blew your house up again. You're in some stupid place again. You've made a mess of yourself. What does the Bible say? In the silence, in the desolation, the Lord wants to speak to you. Are you desolate? The Bible's telling you God wants to speak to you. Well, what's he want to say? He wants to speak kindness to you. He wants to go, I understand. You got some contradictions. You got some areas of your life that just aren't coinciding. You still have selfish, fleshly, earthly desires. You don't really know who you are. You don't really know who I am. You haven't really adapted yourself to follow my spirit. I understand. Let me speak kindly to you. 
Then he says this, it goes on. <laughs> There's nobody like, like Jesus. If man had to write what God was like, he wouldn't be like this. We would not write a God, we would not develop a God or talk about a God who is the way that he speaks of himself. We wouldn't. Our God would be harsh and dominating. Look around the world. That's exactly the God's men create, harsh and dominating, crushing. Look what the church creates. Look how the church personifies Jesus as this harsh, dominating, crushing God. Is there a standard? 100% there's a standard. But he's gracious, he's kind, right? Merciful, kind, just, loving. Now what he said to Moses? <laughs> he says, I will return to her her vineyards, right? This is crazy. So I am going to, in the desolation, I'm gonna speak to her and I'm gonna give her back her fruitfulness. I'm gonna give her back her means of reproduction. That's what vineyards means. Everything that she's lost, everything that she's gained, I'm gonna give her back the means by which she can produce again. Hello, right? I'm gonna give her back that. I'm gonna transport the valley of her trouble and I'm gonna turn it into a doorway of hope. The valley of Achor means trouble. So what he's saying is my people have turned away from me. They've made up their own game, they've done their own thing, and where are you gonna be at? If you turn away from Jesus, you're gonna be unfruitful, and you're gonna be in the valley of desolation in a very short amount of time. It might take a year, it might take two years, it might actually, David, it took him three years. David forgot the Lord. And because David forgot the Lord, this is even while he's king. This isn't even when he's running. When David was king, he didn't inquire of the Lord for three years, he forgot the Lord. Three years! And he looks up and goes, hey, has anybody noticed? There's a famine in the land. Anybody notice that? Am I the only one? And sure. Why do you think there's a famine in the land? And I'm like, well, maybe I, maybe I should inquire of the Lord. And the Lord's like, oh. You know, David, you haven't inquired of me in three years, dude. Don't you, Cohen, don't you, don't you get the, the, idea, the concept here? Fruitfulness, prosperity, life, abundance comes through me. When you isolate and insulate yourself from me, desolation is what the result is. That's the mirror. It may take you a year or two, but before long, your life's gonna be in the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, but be of good cheer. Jesus says, just because you're in the valley of trouble, I'm gonna open for you a doorway of hope. Who's like that? You bring yourself into the valley of trouble, Jesus is like, I'm gonna meet you in the valley of trouble and I will walk you through a door of hope if you'll let me. And the Lord says to you, says to her, there she's going to say yes to me. You know what the actual language is? She will be intimate with me again. There in that place with my kindness and my offering of hope and my restoration of all of the stupid stuff that she's done, she's going to want to be intimate with me. She's going to bind herself to me again. She's going to give herself to me again like she did when she was young, when, she, when I first freed her from her captivity. Who's like that? People say, well, God's got, you don't know how far I've gone. Who told you that? Who told you that? Who told you that? You don't know how many times I messed up. I mean, you don't know how, you know how big his grace is. People go, well, that's cheap grace, pastor. You keep giving people cheap grace, they're gonna keep doing the same thing. You don't think Jesus knows that? 70 times seven, isn't that what he said? He knows that, but the Bible also says it's the love of Christ that compels us. When it finally clicks in your heart that you are loved in Christ apart from yourself and it finally clicks that the love that God has for you is not about you, you're going to change and you're going to be drawn towards. That's why people run again and again and again because it doesn't click in their heart that they are loved in spite of themselves. That's why it doesn't click. That's why people don't pursue him. I'm not going anywhere. Do you know why? Because he loves me. I'm not going somewhere because I'm under some religious mandate and I'm under some religious construct. Yes, I have discipleship. Yes, there's constructs. Yes, there's this. All of that stuff's true. But that stuff's nothing more than noise except beyond the love of God. The love of God is the central issue. And when you keep running from God, it's because you don't know he loves you. If you're a Christian and you keep taking yourself into the valley of Achor, it's because you don't know he loves you. You don't know who he is and you don't know what he's done for you and you don't know who you are. You have a concept, but you don't know it in truth. Because if you knew it in truth, you wouldn't be going anywhere. Every time you heard the word Jesus, you'd go running. Did I hear Jesus somewhere? Did I hear the church was meeting? Did I hear there's a worship service going on? Did I hear there's a candlelight service? Get me there. 
Where Jesus is, that's, that's what David said. I came running when they said to me, go to the house of the Lord. Why did David come running? Oh my gosh, the legal God is making sure that my mandate is fulfilled and I must go fulfill my mandate. He's like, man, I want to be where he is. When it clicks in your heart, then the love of God will compel you. The rules never compel anyone. Are there rules? I know I'm inevitably somebody's going to say, well, there's, there's rules, Pastor. I get it. There's rules. I get it. But the rules are circumvented by love. I hate to tell you that. Read what Jesus did. He circumvented all of his own rules for love. Did he not? Don't heal on the Sabbath. Jesus is like, it's, a, it's an act of love. You wrote the rule. I know I wrote the rule, and I'm breaking the, lo- I'm breaking the rule for love. Stretch out your hand. <laughs> it's who he is. Love is the higher law. Doesn't matter what the religious law is. Love is the higher law. And Jesus operates by the higher law. The higher law is the highest good. It's what he does. Say you got another verse? I don't believe you. I don't believe this whole acor thing. I don't believe this whole doorway of hope thing. All right, I got two more for you. You want a verses? I got them. I got you. Isaiah 49. The people say, the Lord has forgotten us. And the Lord's response is never. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for the child she's born? Is that even possible? Huh? One of the signs, one of the biggest signs of reprobate in a society is when mothers don't love their children. Because it is so inborn into a woman to love that child. They don't even know why. Like before they get pregnant and they have a baby, they're like, oh, I don't really know if I want to have kids. Not really sure. Then when they get teenagers, you're not really sure if you want to have kids. But anyway, when the woman bears that child, when the woman carries that child, there's an affection, there's a love, there's an openness that comes upon her that's almost surreal to her. You see it time and time again, where that woman will literally give her life for that child, and she doesn't even know why. So true. She'll sacrifice everything for that child, and she doesn't know why. And this is what God's saying. If a mother can't forget her child and another won't forget the, the child that she's nursing, especially even a vulnerable child, the Lord says, I, even if that were possible, I would never forget you. Even if a mother could forget, even if a, a mother could give up her nursing baby, even if a mother could give up her children or not want them, there's various circumstances. I understand that. I understand that. That's not what he's relating to. Even if it was possible for a mother to just have disdain for, while she's nursing her child, even if that was possible, which it's very hard to, to be, I will never forget you. When you come to Christ, Jesus doesn't forget you. The Bible says he tattoos you on his hand. Big debate. Tattoos in the Bible? Read Leviticus, Kevin. I'm like, yeah? Well, there's two places where the Bible says Jesus has tattoos. I don't know if you know that or not. I know this is going to be hard. It's going to be hard, right? If you're a religious Christian, take a Cinnabon. Oh, don't you be telling us to get tattoos. I'm not telling anybody to get tattoos. And they say, well, Leviticus, they got the tattoos. Leviticus also tells you not to wear blended fabric. Leviticus also tells you not to trim the hairs of your, of your beard. So if you're a dude that's against tattoos, then you better be wearing all cotton. That's all I got to tell you. Don't you be wearing no poly blends. Because the Bible says if you're guilty of the part, you're guilty of the whole. And if you want to enforce the part, if the part of the law, then you need to enforce the whole. There's no piecemealing the law of God. We are exempt from the law of God because of the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. So don't go quoting me Leviticus. We shouldn't eat shellfish either. Okay. (laughs) And women, if they're menstruating, can't come to church for 10 days. Are we doing that? That's part of the law. Well, we need to start doing that. That was the law. The law was to show the weakness of humanity, the weakness of the flesh, and the strength and the honor that God deserves. That's what it was for. And it was for his time, and it was for a season. And God was showing the law's bondage. And he's showing freedom in Christ. These guys, well, we're going to get tattoos. The Bible says he tattoos you on, your hand, on his hand. He's got a pretty big hand, doesn't he? It's like, Corey, yeah, I got you right here, man. You're right here, I got you. Do you forget me, Lord? And he holds his hand up. How can I forget you? How can I forget you? He, you're tattooed on the palm. That's not a tattoo, it's the word written. No, it's the word, it's the word etched. Etched. It's the same word where we get the word engraved. He engraves you on the palm of his hand. Jesus got a tattoo engraved on his thigh, right? He's blinging. He blings it. When he comes on the white horse, he just throws that robe open and says, check it out. King of kings and Lord of lords. Same word, etched. It's not a henna tattoo. 
It's an eternal tattoo. Now, what are you saying? I'm not, you know, look, whatever, dude. Like, you're advocating tattoos. I'm advocating Jesus. So let me just be clear who I'm advocating. (laughs) I will never stop loving you. Psalm 89. Oh, come on. This is good. You need hope this morning. Jesus is your hope dealer. He's got it. Psalm 89, 33, I will never stop loving you, nor will I fail to keep my promises to you. That's it. You need hope this morning? There's your verse. We can go home with that one. (laughs) I will never stop loving you. When you come to Christ, he never stops loving you. I will not fail to keep my promises to you. Everything I have told you, I will do. I will not break my covenant with you, and I will not take back a single word that I have said to you. Not one single thing that I've told you will I take back. Not one single promise will I give you that y'all won't take back. Try. Charmaine, we were praying for her and she was in the hospital. Jesus starts giving me this word culver, 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 culver. I don't know what the word culver means. I'm trying to pray. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to use the word culver because I pray in the spirit. So I let the Lord give me the words. And so I'm getting this word culver. I'm like, I have no idea what that word means. And so I'm trying to work it in, and then I say something wrong, and I'm like, okay. Then I felt like the prayer just like dropped. It was like, Meow. So I hand the prayer off to Alex. I'm like, Alex, keep praying for Charmaine. i got to figure out what this word culver means. It's a term of endearment given in a youthful context, and it means little dove. That's right. Not one word will I withdraw from you. Jesus is praying. We're praying over Charmaine. And as I'm praying over Charmaine, I keep hearing this word culver, culver, culver. What's he saying? Little dove. Little dove. Not one word will I take back. Not one word. This is who he is. This is Christ's veil that he only reveals to those who understand who he is. Love reveals him. Understanding reveals him. If you will not love or, or, or acclimate yourself to the heart that he has, his heart will not be revealed. God will reveal certain aspects of his nature depending on the level of intimacy that you want to go with him. But there are certain aspects, I'm telling you aspects of his nature that only come through intimacy. This is why this stuff, when I say it, they're like, well, this isn't broadly known. Of course it isn't broadly known because it's intimate. Ladies, does everybody know everything about you or does your husband? Men, is every lady supposed to know? No, there's there's something, there's a knowledge that comes through the intimacy of the relationship. There's an exchange, there's an understanding. This is the exchange and the understanding that comes through the heart of God through intimacy and understanding and drawing forth towards him. And he'll give it. But you've got to come. And you've got to let him see into you first. Into me you see. And then into him you see. Everybody wants to be intimate with Jesus. Oh, I want to know you, Lord. I want to know you, Lord. He's like, let me know you first. Let me see into you. Let me show you. That's where it gets tough. (laughs) But nonetheless... He's he's loving. Motifs of Jesus. He's shepherd. We know these. Savior, shepherd. He's wisdom personified. That's that's what the proverb says. Christ is wisdom personified. He's the king. He's the servant. He's the presence. He's the power. He's the purpose. He's the prophet. He's the king. There's a dominant theme that we don't talk about a lot. Because we like fairy Jesus in the United States of America. But this is an extremely dominant theme from the Old Testament all the way through the, two, through the New, and it's called warrior. So when it says mighty God, we think mighty, right? It's the Greek word, i got to pronounce this correctly, Gehoba. So it's this word, G-H-I-B-O-R-E, Gehoba, I don't even know. You try it out. But what it means is it means warrior. So when the Bible says he will be mighty God, it means he's the warrior God. It's the same word that's translated valiant. It's the same word that's translated hero. Who is he? He's the warrior God. Who is he? He's the valiant God. Who is he? He's the hero God. You think I'm kidding? I'll give it to you. Exodus 15.3, the Lord is a warrior. Jeremiah 20.11, the Lord is a warrior. Isaiah 42.13, the Lord is a warrior. Job 16.14, the Lord is a warrior. Job 2.11, the Lord is a warrior. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord is a warrior. That's just the Old Testament. Then in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the most common name, one of the most common names he refers himself to, over 200 times he calls himself the Lord of hosts or Jehovah Sabaoth, which means, what does it mean? It means the God, the warrior. 
So he, the Lord, Jehovah Saboath, so the, the Lord, the warrior, or it means the Lord of the warring hosts, or a really cool translation is the God of the angel armies. He's the God of the angel armies. You understand that? Jesus came to throw it down. He came to fight. Oh, just meek and mild, pathetic, weak, effeminate Jesus came to the earth wearing a dress and sandals and spoke in dweeby terms. Who told you that? Who told you that? That's not what he did. He came to throw it down. He came to defeat sin. He came to defeat sickness. He came to defeat hell. And he came to defeat death. And all demonic power is rendered inoperative because of what he's done. You show me another. You show me another. You search heaven. You search earth. You search history. You search the annals of time and space. And you show me another who's done what he's done. And this he did with his hands behind his back, a blindfold on. And, you know, he had a gag in his mouth. This guy like, okay, let's go. We're going to fight. Let's go. So Jesus is fighting and he wins. The devil never had a chance, man. He never had a chance. He beat the devil in weakness. In weakness, he beat the devil. In weakness, he defeated sin. What can he do in strength? That's the question. The God of the angel armies didn't come with the angel hosts, right? You have no power over me at all. He said, do you not think I could ask and there would be 10,000 angels at my command? I am the I am Jehovah Saboeth. I am the God of the warring angels. I am the God of the angel armies. Do you not think I could speak and they would come? They're at the ready. Michael's got his hand on his sword. He's just saying, say the word, dude. Say the word. He's going to come again. And he's not coming, like I told you. He's not coming incognito. He's coming with full weight. Full weight. This isn't weak and compromising Jesus that's coming through the clouds. Mm -mm. The Bible says that there would come a time when the nations will gather together in mass and they will go up against Israel. Jesus will not fight for himself, but he will fight for his people. Do you know that? He suffers all kinds of insults upon himself. It's like a guy who has a family. You can say whatever you want to say about me, but you start talking about my kids, it's on. You start talking about my wife, it's on, right? You can, you know, look, I can let it all go, dude, but you're going to start going there and you're going to have a problem. Jesus doesn't fight for himself. He fights for you. It's true. He didn't beat the devil because of himself. He beat him for you. If Jesus had his way, he could have done, gone away with the whole thing. He could have dipped, gotten rid of the devil. Boom, you're gone. Got rid of the earth. Got rid of everybody else. and just, he, could have, he could have just wiped it all clean, but he didn't want to do that. He did it for love. And you know why else he did it? I'm going to tell you right now because he likes a fight. I'm going to tell you right now. This dude likes a fight. Jesus likes a good fight. Bible says that in the end, he's going to set up his eternal kingdom. But in the last days, there's the nations. This is one of the signs of the coming of Christ. The nations are going to come together and they're going to go up against Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to return. All of the nations of the earth in a confederate manner at the height of man's rebellion will move against Jerusalem. And that's when the Lord does one of the, that's one of the, one of the ways he will come. And when, he's, when he comes, he's going to do four things. He's going to receive his people. That's the first thing he's going to do. Rapture. Catched away. He's going to catch us away. We're going to meet him in the air. I had an unbeliever say one time, what does it mean? You're going to fly? I said, no. Matthew 28 tells me the angels are coming for me. I'm going on an angel ride. That's right. I'm going to put a towel on. Angel's going to come. I'm going to go five minutes. Just give me five minutes. I'm telling you. You're going to see Pastor Kevin going up. If I'm alive, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a cape on. I'm going to be doing my Superman pose. Y'all can be going up screaming, oh, oh. I'm going to be going, dun, 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 That's right. He comes to receive his people. He comes to put an end to man's rebellion. He comes to set up an eternal kingdom, and he comes to judge the living and the dead. Isaiah 63, you don't think he likes a fight? Preach this one. Who is the one who comes through the valley of Edom whose, dyes, whose garments are dyed from Bozrah? The one who is wearing the robe called splendor. I love that. 
So Jesus is going to come, and he's going to be wearing a robe called splendor. What does that look like? I don't know, but I want to see the robe that's called splendor. I mean, you got like a robes that have names. You know, what's the glory robe, Lord? What's the splendor robe? He's going to be wearing the glory. He's not in swaddling clothing, people. He's come. He comes to the earth. The prophet sees him coming through Edom. He's in Israel. What's he doing? He's throwing it down. He said, who is the one wearing the robe called splendor, traveling in greatness and strength? And the Lord says, it is I who speak in righteousness. It is I, the mighty one to save. So Jesus is like, it's me. Knock, knock. Why is your apparel red, the prophets asked. And why are your garments, why are your garments like one who treads the winepress? The Lord says, because I have treaded the winepress. How? Alone. Alone. Jesus is going to come and he's going to throw it down. He's not going to have, he's going to not going to need the armies. He wants to fight this alone. I have trodden the winepress alone. For I've trodden down my enemies in my time of judgment, and I have trampled them in my fury of my indignation, and their blood is sprinkled on my garments. That doesn't sound like fairy Jesus, Pastor, because it's not fairy Jesus. It's Jehovah Sabaoth. It's the warrior God. Why is he doing this? He says, for the day of my vengeance has come, and the year of the redeemed has come. Good news. When Jesus comes for his people, it's the year of the redeemed but it's a woeful time for the world. It's a woeful time for those who rebel against him, for those who have set up standards and nations and doctrines and decrees. Just reading about how China's giving a state Bible now and they're changing Jesus into a sinner. Yeah. It's a woeful time for those people. A woeful time for those who have rejected Christ in the face of knowledge. Woeful time. Woeful time for nations that have raged against him and have sought to belittle him. The Lord will come. There'll be a day of this accounting. And they say, that's what Peter says. We, we look at God's patience as weakness. His patience is not weakness. His patience is grace. His patience is love, not willing that any should perish, but all should come. The day of his vengeance has come. He's the warrior God, people. He's the mighty God. If you don't know Jesus, you need to know him. You need to not pass through the veil without knowing him. I can assure you of that. He's the eternal father, the father of eternity. I'm almost done. What does this mean? Is he the eternal father? Is he the son? Or is he the father? He's the father of eternity. That's the meaning. What does that mean? It means he is the source of all creation and all things eternal. Hebrews chapter one, Jesus made everything. He's the instrument of creation. Christ made it. So here you have Hebrews chapter one. And what's going on in Hebrews chapter one, the father is proclaiming over the son. And the father proclaims over the son, and the father is speaking, the prophet is recording, and the father is speaking. And he says, you, Lord, or you, Adonai, have laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. In other words, the father is decreeing it was by you. They are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up, because he has dominion. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will, now, will have no end. You got another one? I got two more for you. Got to give you the two and threes. Colossians 1, 6, for by him, that's Christ, all things that were made. Well, what things? Things that are in heaven, things that are in the earth. The visible and the invisible realm were created by him. So the invisible realm, eternity, is created. All things were created through him. All things were created for him. Jesus is the creator. He is the father of eternity. All things were made by him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. John 1, 3. So what does this mean? It means Jesus knows how all this is supposed to work, right? You're like, what does it mean? How does this work? Jesus knows how it works because he made it. So what does that mean? He knows what's wrong and he knows how to fix it. He knows, how, he knows what's wrong and he knows how to fix it. He made it. He knows how your life is supposed to work. He knows what will bring you the most benefit. He knows what will bless you. He knows what will turn your life around. He knows and he knows how to fix it. But again, the issue isn't whether he knows. The issue is, is will you do what he asks? Right? So somebody said, hey, you got to drive on the right side of the road. Because if you drive on the left side of the road, you're going to get hit by a car. Well, I think it's a pretty good idea to drive on the left side of the road. You know, no, no, listen, I designed the highways. This is how the roads work. You know, people going north or going this way drive on the right side. People going this way drive on the left side. Yeah, but I don't, I don't like the way it works. So I'm going to make up my own rules. Well, how many knows there's a car crash coming 
right? Yet that's exactly what we do, even as believers. So he's the Prince of Peace. He alone has the authority to bring peace. Peace is referenced in the Bible as a river. What a beautiful picture, right? So God's peace flows. How awesome is that? And peace does what? A river does what? Rises, doesn't it? A a river moves and a river rises. And wherever the river goes, there's life. So Jesus is the one who has the authority to bring peace. And we need to know what peace is. When we say the peace of God, it's not this tranquil, surreal state. The peace of God means to flourish like a river. The peace of God means wholeness or to revive. The peace of God means to rise with purpose or to rise with well-being. You get the indication? So when God releases peace into your life, it's to cause your life to rise. When God releases peace into your life, it's to cause well-being. It means to flow with blessing. Jesus is the only one who gives that. Do you know that? He's the only one that can cause your life to flow with blessing. How many knows blessings relative? You can have a million dollars and not be blessed. Completely bankrupt emotionally, completely bankrupt socially, completely bankrupt relationally. You can be completely bankrupt physically. Yeah? I think it was Sinatra who was willing to pay a million dollars for somebody that could give him more time. He was rich, but he was physically bankrupt. God's the only one that can cause your life to flourish. He gets peace from God. This is Luke 2.14. So Prince of Peace, what does it mean? It means the peace comes from him. Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and peace be upon or towards the earth and goodwill towards men. What does it mean? It is a gift from God. So peace that comes into our world, it's not uh, national peace, it's not uh, tranquility, it's a blessing and a flourishing. That's what, that's what it means. And Jesus is the one who has the authority to release that blessing and authority, uh, that blessing in your life. But it comes from God. It is a gift from God. So Jesus offers us a gift. That's what Christmas is all about. It's about a gift of peace from God. And Jesus offers not only a p- gift of peace from God, he offers peace towards God. This gift has to be opened. This gift has to be received. Jesus is offering a gift. Peace Through me. Peace where? First of all, peace with God. Man is at war with God. Your conscience is at war with God. Man thinks he knows God. The the person, Jesus is God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way you can have peace with God is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. There's no other way. And then the last part of this peace is peace of God. This is given to the believer. No, the world, Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Did he not say that? Do we not understand that? So there is a peace that is available from God that doesn't come without him. It is a peace of God. And the peace of God that surpasses understanding guards your heart and mind. There's a peace that's available to you, a peace, a flourishing in the soul, a peace that will move through your life like a river, causing all of the areas of your life to flourish and to rise if you will allow it. And it begins by understanding the gift that was given. It was given and what the gift is for. The gift must be received. And then once the gift is received, it has to be allowed to activate. A lot of Christians don't activate the peace they've been given. They don't allow the river to flourish in their life. They stop the river. Well, I don't want the river flowing over here. No, 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 no. Don't let the river of God flow into my family. Don't let the river of God flow into my time. Don't let the river of God flow into my money. We stop. God's river wants to move into all these areas of your life to cause them to rise and to flourish, but he can only do that if you allow it. So we're gonna close here. If you are watching us and you don't know Jesus, today is your day. Today is your day, not tomorrow, not next week. Today is your day. I want you to know something. You're separated from Christ. All of us are. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person is born separated. We're born separated. From sin, We're born out of, a, out of a, an ancestor named Adam who sinned, and now we all get that. So all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of that sin is death or eternal separation. But the gift of God is life in Christ Jesus, eternal life. It's what, come in, what we were just talking about here, about the peace of God, the gift that comes from God through Jesus. Jesus is the child born to set the world free. He's the gift that's given this time of year. If you're going to open up any gift, open up this one. Open up Jesus. And the Bible says when you open up the gift of God, the peace of God, then you have peace with God. 
And then you can actually have peace from God. Your life's going to shift. Your life's going to change. You're going to get born again. You're going to get forgiven. The Bible says old things will pass away and behold, all things will become new. You say, how do I open the gift? Very simply, believe in your heart and open your mouth. You have to open your heart and allow the gift to be deposited in you. And you have to confess that Jesus is Lord. The Bible says if you'll do that, you'll be saved. So we're going to close right here. The church is going to pray with us. The church is going to pray with you. If you're watching this and you've never given your life to Christ, don't, you don't do it with your head. You do it with your heart. And let's just do it with, from the heart. Just open your heart. That's all you got to do and say what I'm going to tell you to say. 60-second prayer, 45-second prayer, more than likely, that can change your eternity. So let's pray. Just say, Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior, and I need a Savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. And so I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me, and I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. And all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you did that, heaven celebrates with you and we celebrate with you. Let us know. Yeah, we want to know. So hit us up in the messenger. Send us something. We want to connect with you. But we want to bless you one more time. We're going to take communion here. We're going to end the stream with this. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. And may the Lord be gracious to you. And may you forever live within his favor in peace in Jesus' name. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week. All right. It wasn't bad. It was close. Shelly keeps holding up the, the communion tray. Communion. And I'm trying to ignore her, so then she's going to start throwing communion cups at me. All things serious. Jody's going to play, and as she plays, you guys, if you would make your way up and around and just bring back with you your communion cup, and then just wait. We'll take it together, so if you could just hold on to it. You can separate the wafer from the foil and just make it ready, but just hold on. We'll take it together. If I can separate the wafer from the foil. Annie Oakley. of the things we do as believers spiritual we worship God in spirit and truth but there's two physical things that Jesus gave us that demonstrate like a physical part of the faith that we have in him the first one is baptism which is a testimony that our life doesn't belong to us but it belongs to Christ we give our life away in the water and we rise new unto him the second thing that he gives us that's a physical participation is communion it means common union That's why we take it together, because we have common union.